I would invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to the book of 1 Kings and chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. I will eventually read the entire text. It's not that long, but I'm going to do it as we come to each segment so we can follow the story. Some of you know that I have had just a few years of formal education in my life. I have a couple of degrees up, hanging, diplomas hanging up in my office. But you know, sometimes it's the simple things that we learn when we're very young that we remember. One thing that I remember, and I'm sure as soon as I begin to say it, the music will go in your head, is a certain show where they had a, a segment called One of These Things Is Not Like the Other. One of these things doesn't belong. Now that you've got that tune, they won't get out of your head for the rest of the day. This is true. We like to look at groups of things and find the differences. Find out how they differ and how they are challenging to one another or how they have different emphases. We distinguish. It's one of the very first things we teach our children, isn't it? We teach them to distinguish letters from scribbles, vowels from consonants, words from phrases, and so on. And that's just with language. You see, it's also something that we do in our lives. We're constantly distinguishing ourselves from others, our actions from others' actions, trying to find ways that we are different, especially when we look across the way and the person that we see is not someone that we particularly like. We try and find every way to make ourselves different from them. My guess is, in my sanctified imagination, that a lot of that went on at the court of Jeroboam, and a lot of that went on at the court of Rehoboam. As they looked across the border and said, I'm glad I'm not like those Israelites. Oh, if I was like those Southerners, those Judeans, that would be the end of it. When in reality, what we're going to see from this chapter, and the sermon that I've entitled The Tale of Two Kings, that really these kings have but one tale. They're really not very different. Both of these things, actually, both of these men don't belong. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at these two kings and the way that they relate and the way that they think about the Lord God. We'll look first at a lesson about how you can't fool God. You can't fool God. Even if you think, okay, I know I can't fool God. He's a pretty smart person. You also can't ignore God either. You see, there are people who try and ignore God in our society, and there are others who realize they can't do that, or excuse me, they try and fool God. And so there are others who say, well, I can't fool him, but I'll just ignore him, pretend he doesn't exist. I'll whistle in the dark. And then there are still others who need to be taught the lesson that you can't mock God. So in this story, these two kings will see that you can't fool God, you can't ignore God, and you can't mock God. Let's begin by looking at chapter 14, the first six verses. 
At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, the hydra the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She rose and went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Let us seek the Lord's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you also, Lord, for giving us your spirit to illumine your word, that it might grow in our midst, take deep root in our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So great King Jeroboam, we've seen him set up his many temples. We've seen him build his large new fortress city. We've seen him take ten of the twelve tribes with him. And he's faced with a problem. There's trouble in his capital city. Trouble with a capital T. Because his son is ill, gravely ill. And this has two components to it. It's not just that a child is ill. No, this is very likely the heir to the throne. The eldest son. Everything that Jeroboam has worked for an entire religion that he has created to get security is now in jeopardy because of illness. And he formulates a plan because, after all, he's a man of action. And his plan is to try and to fool God. And so he comes up with trick and treat. Not trick or treat, but trick and treat. He's covering all his bases. He's going to trick God and he's going to treat Him. His son Abijah has just fallen ill, and it's the first sign of real trouble in Jeroboam's life. You remember that in chapter 13, he had turned a complete deaf ear to the Word of God. He actually had a prophet come to him and tell him the Word of God, and he said, oh, never mind. He ignored what was going on. But now, irony of irony, now he wants to hear from God. Because he wants to hear from God on his terms, not God's terms. And there's great irony here for Jeroboam, the creator of the golden calves. It's an irony that you may not get unless you spend late nights studying Hebrew. It's that the name of his son that is sick is Abijah, which means God is my father. So, do you see this? This harkens back to a time when Jeroboam was at least paying lip service to the Lord and he names his son 
Names in the Bible have significance. He names him, God is my father. And so he sends his wife off for his good son, Abijah, to try and figure out what can be done to heal this young boy. And Jeroboam then plans a trick that he could play on Ahijah. Now, small aside here, especially kids. In this chapter alone, we have Abijah, we have Ahijah, and we have Abijam. Okay? Don't even get started when we later get into all the kings whose names begin with H. So, we could just remember them as Jeroboam's son, God's prophet, and then later on, Rehoboam's son. Don't get confused. Don't let the names throw you from the main point. So Jeroboam says, I'm going to play a trick on this prophet so that I can figure out how to save my son. And the first thing he says is, maybe I should go over... No, I'll send my wife. Now, imagine this. Powerful Jeroboam, man of action, came back from Egypt seized ten tribes, built up a temple, two golden calves, set up a whole new system of worship, stood right in front of the man of God in his prophecy and said, no, no thanks. And now what does he do? He's hiding behind his wife's skirt. He says, um, you go ahead, honey. Why don't you take care of that? You ever seen a man like that? Hides behind his wife, hides behind his children doesn't want to be a man, it's because there's no substance to Jeroboam's bravado. It's all bluster. When it comes down to it, when it's real brass tacks, when his son is ill, so ill that he needs desperate help, he sends his wife out to fix the problem. That's a bit about his character. If we're honest, though, if we think about it, we're faced with those kinds of choices every day, aren't we? Are you tempted to hide behind things that you put up to keep God at a distance? Maybe you hide behind your busy schedule. Your day planner stays between you and God. I'd love to pray, oh Lord, but look at my, look at my schedule. Maybe you put a boss who's cantankerous in front of Well, Lord, I'd love to serve you, but my boss is so hard to deal with. Maybe you put tension in your household ahead of God's Word and time with God. Maybe you put a disability in front of God. That's what Jeroboam is doing. He's hiding behind his wife. But it's not just that he's hiding behind his wife. He doesn't even want Abijah to know, or excuse me, he doesn't even want Ahijah the prophet to know it's his wife. And he says, uh, honey, get up and would you put on that old Halloween mask that we have? You know those old ratty clothes that we have back in the closet? Pull those out and disguise yourself so that the prophet won't know who you are. You see, Jeroboam thinks he could disguise his wife. Maybe Ahijah never got a good glimpse of his wife. You know, we know Ahijah spent time with Jeroboam talking to him, but maybe his wife was back home making soup or supper or cleaning. And he figures if he dresses her up so she doesn't look like a queen, nobody will know he could pull a fast one on the prophet and get a good word. The interesting thing is we find out that Ahijah has a weakness. It's that he can't see very well. 
He's gotten old, and very likely, this is the Bible's way of saying, he's got cataracts. He's got bad cataracts. I I want this man to be very real to you. He's an old man who has served the Lord, continues to serve through his difficulties. His eyesight is dim. No lasers back in Bible days. No different lenses to put in. So, Jeroboam has worked this plan to visually disguise his wife from a man who can't see. Jeroboam has no idea what Ahijah's physical condition is. Now, why is that important? Why does our historian take the time to tell us, it doesn't come up later in the story, that Ahijah can't see? Well, it's not just that Jeroboam is ignorant of Ahijah's physical condition, his eyes. He's also ignorant of his spiritual condition. He thinks he'll send his wife off, she'll go in front of the prophet. The prophet doesn't really have a relationship with God, or maybe God doesn't even exist, or he's quiet, and he could pull fast one over on the man of God. He's completely ignorant of what's going on here. There's something else that should perk up your ears. Any time in the Bible somebody says, hmm, I think I'll put on a disguise, somewhere in the background, in huge neon lights comes up, bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. What do I mean by that? The first time in the Bible that we read about that in these historical books is King Saul. He says, I'm going to go talk to a witch at Endor. But she might not like me if I'm the king. I'll wear a disguise. That turned out real well, didn't it? Well, there's another time that that happens. Ahab says, we're going to go out and fight in battle. But I don't want them to know who I am. I'm going to put on a disguise. That turns out real well too, doesn't it? He gets stuck with a spear. And as a matter of fact, the scripture tells us that if he hadn't put on the disguise, he likely would have lived, they would have tried to capture him. Doesn't just happen to bad guys, folks. Good King Josiah says, I'm going to go up and fight Pharaoh Necho. And the prophet says, no. God says, no. And he says, no, I'm going to do it. As a matter of fact, because Pharaoh Necho won't fight me, I'm going to put on a disguise. That doesn't work out so well either. He dies. Disguises are a bad thing. They're a bad thing when you're a king. They're a bad thing when you're a mom. They're a bad thing when you're a kid or a dad. Putting on a happy face when you're not really happy doesn't bring good things. Pretending you know things that you don't because you don't want to be embarrassed doesn't bring about good things. Disguises are bad. And so Jeroboam sends out this trick and this treat. He sends out a, a gift, but it's, it's like a re-gift almost. He's the king and he sends... Ten loaves of bread, some crackers, one jar of honey to the prophet. Now think about this. This is like somebody who comes up and says, I got something that's absolutely wonderful for you. And they hand it to you and you see the dollar store tag still on it. $2.99. Oh. It's a paltry gift. Because you see, that's part of the deception. He doesn't want Ahijah to know he's a king. He's trying to fool this prophet. And the final thing we need to think about here is he's trying to fool the man 
that he thinks knows enough to give him an answer about how to heal his son. Does that make any sense? It's like trying to ask a spelling bee champion, you don't know how to spell the, do you? Come on. What's he thinking? This is his trick and treat. But the thing that he's going to learn is, who really sees here? Who's really the one who sees? Is it Jeroboam? Or is it Ahijah? Well, you see, what Jeroboam sees is that there's something to do with God and there's something to do with His Word. And Jeroboam has, I imagine, a technical term for it. It's not in the Hebrew, but in the English we'd call it magic. Jeroboam's view of God and the Word of God is you put it in a box, when you need something, abracadabra, it fixes it. That's what he thinks. You put God in a box or in a golden calf. And when you need something from God, you rub the genie, you open the box, and kapow! Life is good. That's his view of God and His Word. That's what he sees. This is something that doesn't end here. You don't need to be a Jewish king to realize this. It's the exact same view that a man named Simon has in Acts chapter 8. When he looks around and he sees the apostles doing some pretty neat things. And he whips out his big fat checkbook and he says, I would love to be able to do those things. Who do I make the check out to? Is it Paul, James, and John, Inc.? Or John, James, and Paul, Inc.? Who do I make it out to? He's got a magic view of God. You see, Jeroboam sees only human actors. Kings, prophets, kids, wives. But he sees that some have special powers. That's a challenge for us in our day too, isn't it? You see, we're tempted because the world around us wants to wipe God off the stage to say there are only people. But there are people who have special powers. There are priests who can get rid of your sins. There are preachers that can heal you or bring you a new Cadillac. There are just ordinary people around, but some people are a little bit better than ordinary. And sometimes we're tempted to think that we are the people that are just a little bit better than ordinary. But that's a view that wants to fool God. Ahijah is actually perfectly aware of what's going on. He actually turns the tables on Jeroboam's wife. He essentially says, you are coming for me, but you know what? I came for you. I've got a message for you that God has given to me. And this message, oh boy, you don't want to hear it. It's unbearable. This word for unbearable we've seen before. It was the burden of work in 1 Kings 12. Unbearable work. It was the kind of answer that Rehoboam gave to the people that said, please lighten our taxes. He gave an unbearable, harsh answer. The prophet says to this woman, he says, I know exactly who you are. I know exactly why you are here. And I have a message for you because God has brought it to me. He says, you think you see, but you're blind. You think I'm blind, but I see. Because the power of real sight is in the Word of God. And he says, this is what God told me. He says, Behold, she's coming to you for her son is sick 
and say this to her, the word of God has said to the prophet. And it's interesting that the word of God is so vivid that do you see this end of verse 5? If you have the ESV, it says, when she came, she pretended to be another woman. If you have some versions, we'll have that. Some other versions will have the quote mark at the end of that sentence. She will come pretending to be a woman. Do you see what's happening here? God is so vividly describing to Ahijah what's going on in His Word that some translators, when they read the Hebrew, don't know whether it's God talking or the narrator talking. That's how crystal clear this Word is to the prophet. And God is going to tell Jeroboam, you can't fool me because I'm always a part of my Word. I'm always with my Word. And one of the things that we'll see is that God's Word dominates this entire chapter. It goes basically from verse 6 on through verse 18. You can't fool God, Jeroboam. Christian, you can't fool Him. Well, you say, what else could we do? Maybe if we can't fool Him, maybe we'll treat God like the snarling dog, and if we just pretend he doesn't exist, and we don't look at him, you know, don't look him in the eyes, he'll leave me alone, and I can do what I want to do. I don't have to have the claims of the gospel placed upon That's what happens next. Look at verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, the prophet says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for Himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that He gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. 
And all Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah, the prophet. The prophet says to Jeroboam through his wife, you can't ignore God. You have acted like I don't exist for a long time, king. You need to know that God judges the heart, not the actions. He's looking at your heart and He knows what is in it. And the prophet is the one who has real power here, king, not you. You think you have security. You think you have power. You think you have authority. But it is the prophet of God because of the Word of God who has real power. And the prophet comes out and he gives him his declaration speech. Anytime again in the Bible that you hear, thus says the Lord. You stop, you draw in a breath, and you pay attention. Because it's God speaking directly through the prophet. Notice what God does. He says, I've given you grace. You've rejected my grace. Therefore, judgment is coming. Yes, I really mean it, is what God does. Notice the beginning in verse 7. I exalted you from among the people. I made you leader over my people. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David. I gave it to you. I did this for you. I did that for you. I watched over you here. I did this. Look at all I've given to you, Jeroboam. Grace has been showered on you. You had every incentive to hear and obey. But what actually happened? What actually happened was, you have not been like my servant. You have done evil. You have made for yourself other gods. You have provoked me to anger. You have cast me behind your back. I did this good, blessing, life. You did that. Sin, injustice, death. He says, it was all laid out before you. And you chose death. And he says, because of that, because I see your heart overflowing, judgment is coming. I will bring harm to your house. I will destroy it. I will burn it up. And then at the end of verse 11, for the Lord has spoken it. Exclamation point underline. God sees the heart. And that heart manifests itself in Jeroboam's life. There's really interesting imagery here that's lost in an attempt to be pleasant or nice. You see, what Ahijah actually says is, not every man will be killed. He says, everyone who urinates against the wall will be killed. Your house will be burned up like dung that men burn up. You see, some people sanitize this because they don't want to get into physical characteristics of men. But that's not really what the prophet's getting at. What he's saying is, Jeroboam, your house stinks like an outhouse. There's urine, there's dung, it stinks. You can't cover that up. We know the difference in our modern day, don't we? We see it all the time in advertising. There are bathroom sprays that you have that all they do is add rose petal smell to whatever's going on in the house. You burn fish, and it stinks of fish, now you got rose fish, right? 
But there's another kind of spray that you can buy, or at least that advertises itself this way, doesn't it? It's not just a cover-up spray. It's a sanitizer. They advertise that it actually kills the bacteria in the odor, right? That's what God has to do with Jeroboam. He's got to sanitize Israel. He's got to wipe clean the slate. He says, not only can you not ignore me, I'm coming and I'm cleaning house, baby. It's all done here. And he contrasts the house of Jeroboam with the house of David. But there's an interesting thing going on here. He says, David, who only did what I told him to do. And we scratch our heads and we say, David, the guy who numbered the people, David the adulterer, David the murderer, David, the weak old man at the beginning of this book. Ahijah, you need to brush up on your Bible. But you see, in reality, what's happening here is God is judging the heart. He says, David is righteous. He only does what I command him to do because he looks at David and in our day, he can say he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Do you see, God doesn't say, you're ignoring me, pay attention and clean up your act. He says, you're ignoring me, you must believe in me like David did. You must appropriate David's righteousness. You must be righteous like David is righteous. You must have the robes of grace around you. You can't spray rose petals in the house. God not only judges the heart, God tells Jeroboam that he's active in history. He says, God controls history. He says, I know what you're about, and there's bad news coming. Uh, by the way, you're condemned for idolatry. Um, your heir to the throne is going to die. Oh, and by the way, your whole line is going to get wiped out. And I'm going to put in an entirely new king. An entirely new dynasty. It's all gone. Two verses... Can you imagine, if you're this woman, not only hearing about your son, hearing about your family, and then knowing you had to take that news back? That must have been devastating. But look here also at the end of 13. Or excuse me, at the end of verse 14. He says, He'll cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel. Now, the, the language here is very difficult. Hebrew can be very staccato. And actually, what that says is, what, even now? Or, what, even so? Or, what, henceforth? It's almost as if the prophet is saying, could it get any worse? Yes, it could. The Lord is going to strike Israel... He's going to uproot Israel. Not only is there going to be no more dynasty, there's going to be no more people. They're all going to be dragged out past the Euphrates, where the barbarians are, where the night is, where my word is not found, where my grace is not, where my worship is not, where my prophets are not. That's what happens when you ignore God. And then, if we think about this child, it's really a bugle call to all of Israel, not just Jeroboam, because he says, these three things are going to happen, and as evidence, I'm going to show you number one. And the people of Israel should have been listening for the next 200 years, 
Because number one comes true in a couple of verses. Number two, the dynasty is wiped out next week in next week's chapter. And number three, all of Israel is exiled in 2 Kings 17. God's in control of history. God also reminds Jeroboam just very quickly that he sets the priorities. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. And we're tempted to read those two verses and go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We see this all the time. Yeah, about the book of the Chronicles. Yeah, about the book of the Kings. Yeah, about this other book. We don't have these books. We don't know where they are. We're not really sure why these two verses are in here. But you see, in reality here, this is not just filler. This is not just a post-it note or a footnote, go find the other book. What it really is, is God setting the priorities for all of life. You see, these verses aren't insignificant. What do they tell us? They tell us that Jeroboam was a king for 22 years. And he fought at least some wars, continually later the chapter tells us, against Judah. And he reigned. Now I want you to just close your eyes, good, bad, or indifferent, and think about all of the things that have happened while George Bush has been president. Foreign policy, economic policy, programs natural disasters, political events. If I asked you to make a list and you had time, we could probably fill a bunch of pages of what has happened, right? Jeroboam reigned almost three times as long. And you know what the author says? Well, there was some wars, and he reigned, and he died. And we have chapter 14, chapter 13, and chapter 12, all about Jeroboam. And what's it all about? The only thing it's about is his relationship to God. Think about that. Three chapters that probably cover in time a description of about a week. A day here, three days there. That gets three chapters from the Holy Spirit. All kinds of wars with tens of thousands of people. Gets four or five words. You see, because that's not what's really important. And we're tempted to think that way, aren't we? All of the things that happen in our lives, the homes we have, the jobs and careers that we build, we tend to place importance on all of those events when in reality, the only thing that matters that's written in our obituary is where we stand in relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And that relationship, that obituary can be written for a four-year-old or a 94-year-old. Everything else that gets done is just there. It's the relationship with God because you see God sets the priorities. Well, we turn now, meanwhile, back at the ranch in Judah. Up in Israel, there trying to trick God, trying to fool God. They're trying to ignore God. What happens down in Judah? Surely there's better things happening in Judah. This is David's kingdom. This is Solomon's son, Rehoboam. We find out that actually the situation is worse in Judah. 
They're not trying to fool God or ignore God. They're actively mocking Him. And God says, you can't mock me. You can't mock God. In verse 21, Rehoboam reigned for 41 years. And his mother's name, verse 21, was Naamah the Ammonite. Now, if your eyes skip down to verse 31, you'll see again, his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. Commentators read this, and they think that maybe the record player is stuck. Or they think the scribe went to sleep, and he repeated himself. But in reality, what our inspired historian is doing is setting the stage for what's going on in this whole kingdom. He says, sort of from beginning to end, bookends, you know this guy? His mother was a Canaanite. This is Solomon's foreign policy through wives come to roost. His mother was a Canaanite. So immediately we're not expecting very good things. And he also has a son. So you see it's different, but it's actually the same. This son's name is Abijam. Even though they sound a lot alike, they mean something very different. Abijah means God is my father. Abijam means father of the sea. Now, if you think about Israel, have you ever heard of the Israeli Navy? No. You've heard of the Air Force, haven't you? You've heard of the Army, haven't you? You ever heard of the Israelite Navy? No. What happens when you hear about about Boats in the Bible. Jonah. Paul at Malta. It's usually a precursor to the boat sinks. Rehoboam is so full of himself after he's just had God chastise him and take away ten tribes, he says, you know what? My son is the father of the sea. Look at my kingdom. And you're thinking to yourself, father of the sea? you got two tribes left. You don't even probably have much coastal water. What are you thinking? But you see, Rehoboam is mocking God. And God says, I am a jealous God. They provoked him, verse 22, to jealousy with the sins that they had committed. We think of jealousy, we think of the green-eyed monster, something that's bad. But in the Bible, what that means is God cares for his bride and for his people. He's the only God that marries His people. He's the only God that goes into covenant with His people. He has a special relationship with them, and you don't mess with that. That's what Rehoboam does. And Rehoboam continues in this sin. He actually goes beyond what Jeroboam has done. Jeroboam has set up the halfway house. Little bit of Israelite worship, little bit of Baal worship, voila, golden calves. Rehoboam says, I can go one better than you. Let's go whole bore. Set the Asherim up. That's Baal's bride, Asherah. Set up those poles that we think believe in her. Oh, and by the way, let's toss out all the old laws. Let's get the prostitutes in here because we can't have a proper Canaanite temple without prostitutes. So let's change society. Oh, and by the way, let's rip down all the old churches and let's build up some high places in some spreading groves like our Canaanite forefathers did. Can you imagine what that would be like to the people of God? Do you get incensed by what goes on in America today? 
Do you get offended by what goes on in America today in the name of Christianity? Now imagine if you were an Israelite and you could remember the cornerstone being laid for the temple. But now imagine that you're God and your people are doing this to you. They're mocking you. They're provoking God to jealousy. It's what Paul warns us against in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 22. God is a jealous God. He says, I can't put up with this, and I'm also a powerful God. Rehoboam, I'm going to show you what life is like. And he raises up Shishak, the pharaoh, the new pharaoh of Egypt. And actually, in history, God is so powerful, what God does to implement this is, the pharaoh of Egypt was actually friends with Solomon. You remember that? What God does is, He wipes out that entire dynasty, and He brings up a Libyan dynasty under Shishak. He changes the whole nation of Egypt, simply so they can be His tool in cleaning up His people. This is a powerful God. You think about this God and you worry about an appraisal and you say, why am I even bothering to think about that? God is powerful. God acts and He's powerful. And so what happens is, we don't see it here, but we see it in Second Chronicles, Rehoboam actually starts to pay a little lip service. They humble themselves. Clean up their act a little bit. It's a temporary reform. And... He wants to keep the show going on. We lost all our gold shields. What do we do? What do we do? No more gold. What do we do? No more gold. No more gold. Bronze. Well, it's not as nice. But that's okay. It looks kind of like gold. Maybe in the right light. We'll have them carry it around. One commentator says, Well, you can't afford department store things. Buy them at the dollar store. Pretend they're just as good. That's what's happening here. The show must go on. But you see, God doesn't want a show. He wants a people. He wants their hearts. That's why He's dealing with both Jeroboam and Rehoboam. There are three types of worship that we see coming out of these chapters. The first is true worship of the Lord God. The second is a mix. And the third is full-blown Canaanite heresy. And every king that comes after this is going to be judged on that. Not how many wars they won, not how many people they employed, not what the GDP was, not how big their territory was. Every king will be judged based on their relationship with the Lord. Now, I've told you this before. If you were counting on being a king or a queen of Israel, I hate to tell you, you're very likely not going to be. But the same principle applies to you and to me. We can... Build wonderful family memories on vacation. We can build up our homes. We can have large families. We can put our kids through college. We can do all sorts of things. But none of that is what we will be judged on. Every man, woman, and child will only be judged on their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that alone. That's something that in America today we need to hear. Because we're tempted to look at the periphery and judge ourselves and our churches and our nation. The tales of Jeroboam and Rehoboam point you, beloved, to Jesus, to believe in Him, to worship Him alone. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You for this tale that You have given to us. We thank You that You have so blessed us with this. And we ask that You would point our hearts and our minds toward Jesus. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen.